This stand is new. Last year it was just a music stand. I've upgraded. It's great. Speaking of stands, why don't we all stand? We're going to read Psalm 5 together. This is the word of God. To the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord remains forever. Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you this morning, our rock and our redeemer. For the sake of your reputation in all the earth, and in, ho- in your holy name we pray, Lord Jesus, amen. Please be seated. My wife and I have two boys, if you don't know. Um, one's five and one's two, and so uh, every day, at, at least once a day, there are tiffs, disagreements, sometimes all-out fights, uh, you know how that goes. And, um, and when one of them comes to me, I try to go about the Matthew 18 conflict resolution thing, right? Does your brother know that, he, that he, you have a grievance against him? Well, no. Then go back and talk to him. If your brother has sinned against you, go tell him. And then, and then if he doesn't listen then, then you come to me. Now, if they do come to me after that, we have a bigger problem on our hands, don't we? We have tears. We have big emotions. We have, um, we have offense. We have dramatic expression. But it's right for them to seek resolution from me, isn't it? They've already done their job. Now they need to seek resolution from a higher power. But why me? Why not go to grandma? Why not go to an aunt or an uncle? Why not... Why not go to the legal system? Why come to dad? Is it just because I'm the closest one around? No. It's because they know me. 
because they trust me. It's because they, they know that I'm for them and that when, when they can't achieve justice for themselves, I will do it. I will make it happen. And this is where David finds himself in, in our psalm. As you see in verse 11, he's in need of refuge and protection from his God against the destructive powers of his opponents. So who did David go to first? Who does he deem most capable to resolve his conflict? It's not the temple. It's not the judges. It's not his own authority as king. But it's his own king, his God. So while it's good that kids go to their parents uh, to, to restore their justice in conflict, shouldn't it be, parents, that at whatever point our, our kids come to us in conflict, that instead of seeking to be their savior, that instead we get down on our knees and we pray with them first. Let's ask the Lord what we should do in this situation. This is what David does in this psalm, and this is why we need Psalm 5. This is why our Bible wouldn't be the same without it. Because David teaches us about God. He teaches us to know him, to know his power, to know his authority, to know his attributes and how he engages with the righteous as well as how he engages with the wicked. This psalm teaches the righteous to go to that God with our conflict. And it teaches us what to pray, what to say in the midst of that. And so David does this through contrasting the righteous against the wicked and reminding them both about their king. That's our first point. The righteous, the wicked, and the king who judges them both. Now from the start, David presumes himself as the righteous and his enemies as the wicked. We shouldn't always assume that of ourselves, but we know from this point in history that this is now scripture, what he wrote. This is now part of the canon. So it was by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that he wrote this, which means David is the righteous one. And so what does the righteous do? Let's compare. The righteous brings his complaint to the Lord first. You see that David brings his words, his groaning, his cry in the first three verses, his prayer. He also acts obediently. He doesn't just expect the Lord to answer his prayer without going to the Lord with, with obedience. He prepares, he arranges a sacrifice. The word sacrifice isn't actually present in the, manus, in the Hebrew manu, manuscript. Um, it's just, I arrange for you. That's what he says. And usually the word arrange goes with the word sacrifice, so that's why your translators have inserted it, and it's okay. But it might not be an animal sacrifice, specifically. It might be his arrangement of his thoughts, his arrangement, his pre preparation of his heart for this conversation that might be coming with his enemies. It might be his arrangement of this psalm. Whatever it is, he's preparing something for the Lord. He's arranging it for him. And he calls it a sacrifice for the Lord. He's sacrificing his time, his energy, his mind space. And also the righteous watches and waits. The righteous doesn't take this situation into his own hands. He waits for God to do it. For God to have justice in the end. And he expects upon these things a response from God. He also expects a response on the basis of his relationship with his Lord. You see in the first line, 
He calls God Lord, O Lord. All, and it should be all caps in your Bible, L-O-R-D, all caps. I'm sure you know this is, this is the name that God gave to Moses for himself at the burning bush, saying, I am who I am, and I am, I am your God. I have chosen to set my steadfast love on you. This is his covenant name. And on this covenant, David rests his assurance that God will answer him. More than that, he is my king. It's ironic that the king is praying this, isn't it? But if you look back at 1 Samuel, there's several instances in which God calls David prince rather than king. David knows his king is God. And he says he calls him my God. He also doesn't ask God to hear him in verse 3. He says, in the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. He knows his Lord. He knows his God. And he expects a response on the basis of that relationship. He also expects a response to his prayer on the basis of God's character and attributes in the next three verses, verses four through six, as he compares God's attributes with the attributes of David's enemies. His God, he says in verses four through six, takes no pleasure in their wickedness. His God can't be in the presence of their evil. He's holy. He's good. David's God can't even look upon their proud self-righteousness because he alone is perfect and yet perfectly humble. Now, these three expressions are all passive, aren't they? We get a little bit more active in the next three expressions saying God hates evildoers. God destroys liars. God abhors and loathes those of murderous intent. At this point, you might be saying, okay, whoa, whoa, hold up. God hates? I got that question once in in youth group. And I can't go into the whole conversation. It's a long conversation. But at the very least, I can say, we know that God... We know that wrath and hatred are expressions of anger, right? And we know that someone can be angry and not sin. We also know that God calls himself a God of wrath. That's wrath against sin, and so he remains sinless. And so his hatred, too, is against sin, and he remains sinless. So we just saw that God cannot be present with evil, cannot be in the presence of evil. But David, in verse 7 can be in God's presence. He says, I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down before your temple. Quick side note, if you're well studied, you might be wondering how it is that David could enter the temple before it's built. Because Solomon built the temple after David died, right? Well, if you just look back at 1 Samuel 1, you'll notice that the tabernacle was also called a temple. The temple is just a place where God meets his people for worship and for sacrifice. And so verse verse 7 tells us that access into God's presence is attained not by man's efforts, but by God's gracious and abundant, steadfast love. I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. Yet it's also, there's some participation in this, isn't there? David, 
in verse 7 says that I will bow down toward your holy temple. I will, I will fear you. Obedience and fear can't, alone can't access God. But somehow, God acts sovereignly toward us, giving us grace and mercy that we couldn't afford on our own, attain on our own. And yet he also asks us to respond. These two concepts, I think, parallel the Reformation tenets of sola gratia, saved by grace alone, and sola fide, saved through faith alone. The Lord works. The Lord is the one who gets us in, and yet he uses means of our own participation in order to access him. We'll get into faith a little bit later, but verse 8 expounds on the need for grace. One commentator says that it's evident that David's prayer is not only for protection from wicked persons, but from becoming like them. He's praying that God would make his way blameless, saying, lead me in your righteousness. Make your ways straight before me. He's praying that God would uphold his reputation before his enemies. And why is this? Because his enemies, more literally translated, these watching ones, are seeking any possible testimony against him. Has that ever happened to you? A friend betrays you in such a way? Verse 9 says that these, these enemies, these watching ones, are seeking to destroy his reputation through slander. Notice the, the use of mouth words, mouth, tongue, throat. And also this is an ironic contrast to David's words earlier of worship, dependence, devotion. These enemies have no truth in their mouth. More literally, in their mouths is no established thing. They have no grounds for what they're speaking, no foundation. Their words don't hold any weight. Furthermore, their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. This might be playing on the prior mention in verse 6 of their being bloodthirsty. Open graves also possibly refers to a Babylonian warfare practice in which the Babylonians would dig a large ditch across the battlefield and fill it with sharp rods and spears and then disguise it in hopes that their enemies, while charging toward them, would fall in to their own doom, to their own destruction. And cleanup afterward was fairly efficient. You just backfill. This is the type of trap David sees his enemies trying to set for him. These wicked ones are relentless. They're merciless in their slander. And you might have experienced this too. They seem so powerful. They seem so influential. They know just the right people to talk to to get under your skin. They seem so capable of substantial destruction. But the psalmist has a wider perspective, doesn't he? He knows that there's someone more worthy of fear and terror and trembling than these liars. And that is the God whose goodness needed to be veiled by smoke on Mount Sinai because his holiness could level an entire nation in an instant. We may fear the evil devices of wicked people around us. And there's some merit to that. They do have a form of power and influence. But how does their power compare to God's? How does their self-righteousness hold up against His holiness? You see, they have 
far more to fear on account of you than you do on account of them if you love God. Because God, as we know from Exodus 34, forgives the iniquities of those who love him. But he will by no means clear the guilty. So David, for the first time in the Psalms, in verse 10, requests strict justice on his enemies. But he doesn't ask that God would rain down fire on them or strike them in some miraculous way. No, he requests that God would leave them to their own devices. And in so doing, that they would see their consequences and their folly. He asked God to let them bear their own guilt, to fall by their own counsel, counsel like the Babylonian soldiers who may have forgotten where they dug the ditch and they fall into it themselves. David asks for this because, in verse 10, of their abundant transgressions and because of their rebellion against him, no, against God, against you. It's as if David is saying, God, these people are not just opposed to me, they are totally opposed to you. You are abundant in steadfast love, verse 7, but they abound in transgressions. They don't simply rebel against my kingly authority, but against yours. On account of these factors, Lord, if not simply for your love for me, act at least for the sake of your own name. Let them fall into their own traps. But the righteous, verse 11, those who take refuge in you, those who love your name, Lord, let them rejoice. Let them sing for joy forever. Let them have your protection. Let them exult in you. Let them praise you. We live in a country whose borders are fairly well secured from external threats. Other countries know more experientially, as David did, that where there are no national protective measures against threats, there's no true celebration. A city with no walls leaves every citizen vulnerable. But where city walls are well built and well guarded, citizens can rest assured and even engage in carefree celebration. This kind of tranquility only accompanies those who trust in God. There's a peace that passes understanding, Philippians 4. And that peace in verse 12 looks like blessing. You bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover them with favor as with a shield. The word for shield here is one of two words for shield. Uh, It's not a partial body shield. Think Captain America. It's not that size. It's a full body shield. The last time we've seen this word for shield has been in David's battle with Goliath. If you'll remember, Goliath was over nine foot tall. He had a spear, a sword, and he had somebody else carry his shield. It was so big. But also, if you remember the story, that full coverage didn't do him much good, did it? God could bypass that with a child's toy. David's asking for the shield that he had. Do you remember what that looked like? He didn't have a physical shield. He had the Lord's promise of his good for his people. David relied on that to win the battle with Goliath. And he did. And so David ends this psalm, similar to how he began it, expecting an answer from God on the basis of God's relationship 
to his people. David is righteous and God protects the righteous. David's enemies are wicked and God judges the wicked. This is Psalm 5 and this is how we ought to pray. Calling on God's specific attributes into action and reminding ourselves of his reliability to them. So that's point one. And the next points won't be as long. So point two, which one am I? David goes in verse eight to to a a self-perception that he's not actually righteous. He needs to be led in that. He He needs the Lord to make his way straight for him. So which one am I? Am I the righteous or am I the wicked? This passage is delightfully comforting for those who love the name of the Lord, who take refuge in him, who pray to him. But can we call ourselves righteous? Romans 3.13 uses this very psalm, verse 9 of this psalm, to indicate, in fact, that every human being is sinful, is wicked. It says no one is righteous. No, not one. So how can we claim to be righteous as David does? Now when we begin to see ourselves as the wicked one, the comfort of this psalm starts to pale greatly. We might become terrified of our unavoidable fate apart from God because of our rebellion against Him every day. And then verses 4 through 6 and 9 and 10 begin to turn on us. The categories of wicked, evil, boastful, bloodthirsty, deceitful are characteristic of us. We're wicked because we're selfish. We're slanderous. Our tongues flatter. We compare ourselves with other people. We're hurtful with our words. We're bitter. We're cold. We're harsh, ungracious, vengeful, angry. We want others to feel our own misery. We're evil because We're enslaved by our own addictions, drunkenness, gluttony, anger, sex, power, money, that one relationship, that one coveted item. We are evil. In our mouths is no established thing, right? Our promises of sobriety are always left unmet. More than that, we're boastful because we are led by comparison. We find any and every small imperfection in someone else to discredit them and elevate ourselves. Those are our own counsels, aren't they? We're bloodthirsty and deceitful, evildoers. We can go to the Ten Commandments for this one. We use God's name in vain. We set up alternate idols and gods in His place. We misuse the Sabbath day, the Lord's day, for selfish gain instead of His. We lie, we cheat, we steal, we lust, we adulterate, we hate, we murder. Our throats are like open graves. We covet and we share in the abundance of transgressions of these evildoers. In all this, we rebel against God himself. So it should be, in verse, as it is in verses 4 through 6, that God hates us. That God destroys us. That God abhors and loathes us for our evil works. It should be, as in verse 10, that we bear our own guilt that we fall by our own wicked counsels, that we are condemned and cast out to utter separation from all things good and beautiful. But 
I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. For to you do I pray. I prepare and arrange for you, O God. I watch for you. I bow down to you. I take refuge in you. I love your name, O Lord, my King and my God. I depend on your promise that the innocent lamb has somehow borne my guilt for me. Enter Jesus Christ, the righteous. Our third point. We know that while Jesus was on earth in the flesh, he worshiped weekly in local synagogues and along with his regular visits to the temple. And as a child, as a young man, as a grown man, he sang this very psalm. And we also know from the end of Luke's gospel that all scripture is about Jesus. So let's end by imagining Jesus' thought process as he sang through and applied this psalm to himself. In verse 1, Jesus certainly would have related to David's groaning. Because Philippians 2 tells us that he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being made in human likeness. Hebrews 2 tells us that he became like his brothers in every way. Hebrews 4 tells us that he can sympathize with us in our weakness and with our limitations. And he was tempted yet without sin. We also know that Jesus, while he groaned and cried to God, he was heard by God. Because James tells us that the prayer of a righteous man is effective, is heeded by God. And then Jesus would sing verses 4 and 5 and 6. And the initial praise over God's goodness and holiness, you cannot delight in wickedness, might begin to shift to anxiety as he reads that evil may not dwell with God, that evildoers are hated, destroyed, and abhorred. He'd become anxious because that final day of atonement, when the transgressions of all evildoers would be borne on his own shoulders, that day was coming. When he, as 2 Corinthians 5 says, would become sin so that others might become the righteousness of God. So on that dreadful day, the one who never slandered, who never coveted, who never engaged in substance abuse or adultery or sexual immorality, who never boasted in his God-given traits, who never murdered or abused another, who never sinned against his brother, who never transgressed the law, never sinned against God, or engaged in false worship. On that day, the righteous man, the innocent man, would bear the guilt and punishment for each of those sins. And during the full wrath of God, his, hatreds and abhor- his hatred and abhorrence towards sin and deceit and evil was turned upon the Lamb, the sacrifice. Now Hebrews 12 assures us that despite his anxiety at this point, he went through with the crucifixion because of the joy that was set before him. And what was that joy? It was so that wicked ones 
could be delighted in. So that evil ones might dwell with God. So that the arrogant and boasters might be looked upon with love. Evildoers no longer hated. Liars no longer destroyed. Murderers and deceivers like King David himself no longer abhorred by God. So that the unrighteous might be declared righteous on one condition. Faith in Jesus Christ the righteous. And we're not just simply declared righteous, though. We're actually helped along toward actual righteousness, aren't we? Because when Christ read verse 7, I think he looked forward to the day when he would complete his mission on earth and after the crucifixion and ascension would enter the temple of God, which if you remember, is you. That God would dwell with his people. Upon the Holy Spirit's outpouring at Pentecost in Acts 2, Christ could now promise His presence among His people where as few as two or three are gathered in His name. And He promises, as in verse 8, to lead us in His righteousness, making His way straight before us. And while it's true that believers can only attain a sinful human nature in the future after the resurrection, there are still glimpses of that righteousness by His Holy Spirit shining down into our present age, perfecting us, changing us, so that we might actually glimpse victory over sin in this life. We may now, by the Spirit, have victory over addictions. We can participate in purity and in the holiness that God calls us to, becoming holy as He is holy Day by day, more and more. Christ's Spirit doesn't just declare us righteous, but empowers us to actually become righteous, to actually obey Christ sincerely. Not perfectly, not yet. But that Spirit-empowered obedience should also drive us now to run to God in the face of our weaknesses. And conflicts, to request his aid, his refuge, his protection, as David does in Psalm 5, because he's with us, because he's for us, and we know it. We can depend on it, we can expect it. And also, we can be confident that those who wickedly accuse us with their mouths, whose throat is an open grave, who seek our destruction through flattering tongues, that those who are relentless and merciless against you, They will bear their own guilt. They will fall by their own counsels. They will be cast out of God's presence forever. Which initially should drive us to pity. To seek to persuade them. To compel them to repent and believe. But yet some still are relentless. And if they are. And if they're seeking your destruction mercilessly then God's judgment should comfort us because they will have their due reward for their evil deeds against you and against God. And yet judgment is in His hands, as is salvation. We can't save and we can't condemn. But what we can do is know 
and rejoice in our own situation as believers. Because Psalm 5 tells us that God's people are heard, God's people are protected, they are blessed, they are covered with favor. And that those who love his name are loved by him forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ the righteous, to bear the guilt of our wickedness and so offer us your very own righteousness. Thank you for delivering us from our enemies and from ourselves. Thank you for hearing our prayers and our cries and our groanings on account of Jesus' works. We pray that you would lead us in your righteousness, Lord. That you would make your way straight before us. For your name's sake. For your own reputation in all the, all the earth, Lord. And in your name we pray. Amen.